there's a lot of communities that are struggling and there's a few communities that are doing really well. And I, I think it's really time for us to, to sit down and talk about what makes engagement really engaging. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Engagement is at the heart of most thriving learning businesses. In this episode, number 355, we talk about engagement with Amanda Kaiser. Amanda is an engagement strategist, keynote speaker, and author of Elevating Engagement, Uncommon Strategies for Creating a Thriving Member Community. Amanda's background and focus is on community engagement in the context of associations, but her perspective on engagement is valuable for learning businesses of all types. In her conversation with Jeff, Amanda offers a formula for engagement and shares a high-level look at the six stages of engagement. Jeff and Amanda get into specific tactics and approaches, including email communication, social proof, and priming members and learners for participation. And they discuss the primary importance of creating an organizational culture that supports and values engagement over transactions. Jeff and Amanda spoke in April 2023. I know you work with organizations to help them in a number of different ways. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do? Absolutely. So I'm a researcher at heart. I research, I experiment, I speak, I write about engagement. And my my interest in engagement really started when I was working to help guide the Crayola brand. So I worked in marketing at Crayola. And that's what propelled me into this field. And, and if you think, Jeff, about your own experiences with that very iconic yellow box with the green chevrons, for most people, it brings up a lot of emotions, the thrill of opening a new box, the possibilities, the creativity, remembering your, your childhood. And so that's a really good example of brand engagement. And nowadays I study certainly brand engagement, but also attendee engagement, member engagement, volunteer engagement, just to name a few places where engagement becomes really important. Yeah, so that, that's what I'm working on these days. Well, it's interesting you bring up Crayola. I knew that was part of your background, but until you said that, I hadn't sort of made the connection between Crayola and engagement because I just know from having had young children myself and just seeing young children, particularly when you see a child with a crayon in their hand or a box of crayons and that paper in front of them. I mean, you talk about somebody who's engaged. Boy, they just are so focused. So crayons and Crayola, I guess, all about engagement. Now, the main focus of our discussion today is your new book, which is about engagement. Indeed, it's called Elevating Engagement, Uncommon Strategies for Creating a Thriving Member Community. And I think maybe to sort of tee up the conversation, it might be useful to talk about at least a couple of terms. One is engagement. So what you mean when you use the word engagement, because it's one of those terms I think gets thrown around a lot these days. We need to engage people more and for whatever it is. So how do you define that and what really led to your sort of deep focus on it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm so glad you asked that question because you're right. People are throwing around terms. There's a million definitions for engagement. Okay, so so in the way that I think about engagement, there are transactions, 
And then there's engagement. And I think most of our interactions with organizations are transactional. You give me value and I give you cash. And so let me give you an example. The closest dry cleaner to me is adequate. They're like just averagely adequate. They take my blazers and a week later I have clean blazers. And I think that they do an, you know, an okay business, but when I drop off and pick up, there's never anybody else there. But five years ago, I lived in a neighborhood that had the best dry cleaner. I mean, she just, she was the best. She knew my name. You know, I would hand her my blazers and she would ooh and ah over the fabric. And my son was younger at the time. She just loved my son. And the place was always just a bunch of activity. When I was dropping off and picking up, people were always dropping off and picking up. And, and when they'd leave, they'd have this huge smile on their faces. So my current dry cleaner, my relationship with them is purely transactional, but my old dry cleaner, that that's engagement. I feel like that's engagement. So, so engagement is more than a transaction. We're starting to get into that realm of feelings mm. and those feelings are what bring us back for more. And, and so I think that there's a lot of businesses where transactions are okay. But I think, Jeff, the kinds of businesses that we work with and that we serve, you got to have engagement. It's got to be more than just a transaction. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. It's so great to use the example of a dry cleaner because you do sort of think of that, for me, as kind of the ultimate transactional sort of business. I mean, do I really care about engagement with my dry cleaner? And yet... When it happens, you notice it and it feels good. I, I have a tailor that I use. When I say tailor, I mean, all she's doing is like taking up the hem in my new pants or something like that. I'm not having suits made or anything. So I won't see her for six months or a year. And I walk through the door and she says, hey, Jeff. And I mean, just how on earth she's remembering me. And so, the, like you said, the engagement's there in what would otherwise be a fairly transactional sort of business, I will never go anywhere else to get my pants hemmed as a result of just that simple, because it made me, like you said, it's a feeling. It makes you feel so good. Now, I know for you, and you sort of referenced our work, we both work a great deal in the membership world, the association world. You're really focused on engagement in communities. So that was the second term I wanted to ask you about as we're sort of heading deeper into the conversation is community. How do you define community? And I feel like there's an issue with engagement and community, or maybe it's particularly with like membership organizations, traditional associations, that maybe there needs to be more engagement there than has traditionally been the case. Or as you said, it needs to be elevated now. Talk to me about community and then this need for elevation. Yeah. So I, I like to use the word community fairly loosely. You're, you're right. Associations are, people are professionals or communities of their peers with trade societies, the same kind of thing. There's a lot of community there. But I, I also study online communities. I also study every time you bring a group together for an event, even if it's just an hour long event, you have an opportunity to make a community. There are communities kind of popping up and going away and wherever you look. So this is not just an association thing, but I think wherever you look, there are communities that are doing it really well and community leaders that are engaging people really well and communities that are really floundering. So I've noticed, especially with online communities, there's been a lot of online communities that have popped up and then they've waned because there's not enough engagement, not enough interest. So why am I writing this book now? When I look at communities and organizations that have engagement, there's something almost magical about them. They're 
they're certainly thriving from every single business metric we can talk about, but there's something more. There's that energy. You say they have like an event or a conference. You feel the energy the moment you step through the door. If they have online event, the same kind of thing, you feel the energy or you feel the warmth, you feel something. And in today's world of work, I feel like that's really important. It's really important that when we can get people to a place where they can bring their whole authentic selves, where they can collaborate with other people. So that that's why the book now. I, I think there's a lot of communities that are struggling and there's a few communities that are doing really well. And I think it's really time for us to sit down and talk about what makes engagement really engaging. And you make it clear very early in the book that, that experience is really at the core of this. And I, and I was struck by that. I mean, I, I, I get it and I understand and value experience, but you often hear so much about it's about delivering value. We just, we need to find the value. We need to articulate the value. We need to make sure the value is, is appreciated. Can you talk to me a little bit about experience versus value, kind of how they both play into really having an engaging community? So I arrived here after a lot of work, actually. So so in the last 10 years, I have conducted more than 477 in-depth qualitative interviews with mm. professionals from all different kinds of organizations. You know, I've talked to uh, university professors. I've talked to rocket scientists. I've talked to rock scientists and lawyers and CPAs and all sorts of people. And in all in an effort to figure out what engagement truly was. And so what happened as a result of all of these conversations was I found a formula for engagement. And that formula is value plus experience equals engagement. So if you think about my current dry cleaner, they do a good job with my clothes. That's the value part. And I, I like to think about value as kind of the base layer. So you get the value part. And the value part, you know, again, it's very transactional. If like say a new dry cleaner opened up nearby, I'd try them. There's no reason to be particularly loyal. But when we want more than just that transaction, we wanna start doing is we wanna layer on experience. So you get your base layer of value and then you layer on a layer of positive experiences. So value plus experiences equals engagement. And these positive experiences don't have to be elaborate. One of the questions that I'm getting a lot lately is, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. It's like almost like you're asking me to do a second job, Amanda. How do I provide all of this value and now all of these experiences? And I don't think it has to be. I think certainly if you are a big organization with lots of money and lots of time and, and lots of scale, you might have to invest in experiences. But for small organizations or these kind of one-on-one -on -one discussions, maybe not really, you know, that like my favorite dry cleaner, she, she smiled at people. She was super chatty, you know, those kinds of things. Your tailor remembered your name. It, it doesn't have to take a lot of time. We're grateful to Thinkific for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. At Leading Learning, we believe reach, revenue, and impact are essential for all learning businesses. Thinkific Plus is a new generation platform purpose-built to help growing businesses scale revenue. With Thinkific Plus, you can generate monthly recurring revenue through course subscriptions and membership programs, sell multiple seats for your learning products to a single buyer, suggest additional products in the learning flow to increase sales, and go global with 0% transaction fees and payments accepted in over 100 countries. Coastal Drone Co. uses Thinkific Plus to sell online courses, memberships, and certifications to those looking to fly drones in Canada. 
Since converting its training materials into online courses on Thinkific Plus, Coastal Drone Co. has scaled its business, earning more income, training more people, and positioning itself as a leading educator in the Canadian drone industry. Right now, as a leading learning listener, you can get a free month of Thinkific Plus by going to our special URL, thinkific.com learning. Start your free month today at thinkific.com learning. I think the great thing about the book is you articulate this, you know, our experience plus value equals engagement, great formula for everybody to remember. If you remember one thing from the podcast today, that might be the main takeaway to, to have. But you also lay out very nicely the stages that an organization, a community sort of goes through in, in, in achieving engagement. I don't think they necessarily have to be sort of linear lockstep. You can talk about that a little bit, but these are the different perspectives, areas to, to look at when thinking about engagement. There, there's six of them, and I think we have enough time here today to talk about each of those at least a little bit. We may go deeper on some of them than others, but I'll name them, and then maybe we can kind of go through each one. So observe, assess, participate, contribute, collaborate, and lead. So why don't we just take them in that order? Um, observe? How do you describe or, or define that stage of engagement? So this is when you've got people who are newcomers to you. They're you know, newcomers to, say, a conference, new, newcomers to your website, newcomers to your community. And so what happens is they're wondering if they should engage. And so what they do is they observe everything. They observe everything. Email your website, signage, registration, how people are behaving with each other, online communities, everything, especially emails. Email is a big one. For a lot of us, our biggest channel to communicate with other people is through email. So, so they're observing everything. And yeah, so so observe is the first stage. And you're right, Jeff. You had said uh, pe people don't necessarily go lockstep through all of these six in order. Sometimes they, they skip over a stage or reverse the order, and that's totally okay. But it also helps to think through these six stages because if people are going immediately from observe to lead, you might end up with some problems, and then you can kind of reverse engineer out of that. But the other thing that I did is I wrote the book so that if you have a particular question, mm -hmm. you don't have to read 200 pages to get to your question. You can actually pick up and open that chapter and read it and it'll make sense. All right. Yeah. yeah. And it definitely resonated in this observe area. I mean, of course, once you decide you're going to join, you're going to be part of community. I mean, even before you make that decision to join, you're going to be watching. You're going to be saying, is this for me? Are these my people? Is this going to be helpful to me and experience that I'm going to enjoy? And a lot of times organizations, people who are trying to facilitate a community, um, organize a, a community, can flub up at this point. And you referenced email. Can you talk about what might go wrong with email or, or what might go wrong at, at this stage and how do you avoid that? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So the other thing about every single stage is there's sort of go, no-go decisions that people tend to make when they're trying to figure out whether they want to engage further. And I tried to highlight all of those. And email is such a critical one. So for most organizations, their biggest channel of communication is email. So here's what happens. Uh, say in the example of a member joining. So a member joins the hit join, and then they start getting emails. And they might get the ubiquitous welcome email, which tends to be 
listen list. And so it'll say, welcome Jeff to the oldest, largest association for your profession or industry. And so now you have access to 37 member benefits and they will list all of the 37 member benefits. And by the way, we have about 22,000 articles on our website, but we've carefully curated a good 22 for you. So here are the 22 articles that you should probably read right now. And we also have a learning library that contains about 250 on-demand courses that you can grab. And by the way, here's a list of the top 10 most popular. So here's what happens is people look at that email and they say, oh my gosh, not only do I have time to look at all of this, I don't even have time to figure out what I should be looking at. And so with that one email, we've just trained them that every time they they interact with us, we're going to take a lot of time. And so that's one of those places where things can get a little dicey. And so welcome email should be super warm, super quick, and perhaps informative, but at least super warm and super quick, right? So that maybe they walk away with a teeny little tidbit and they're happy and they're ready to open the next email. I like that. Warm and quick for that, yep. that initial email. Keep yeah, Everybody should keep that in mind. So that's that's observe, and uh, you obviously go quite a bit deeper th- than that in in the book. But just for the sake of our conversation today, let's move on to assess what's happening there. Yeah. So you've referenced this before. People are starting to ask themselves questions: Do people like me engage in an organization or event or a community like this? Do people like me do stuff like this? Did I make the right decision in joining? So they take everything that they've observed from your emails to your signage to the registration process to you know what they're seeing in the online community digest and they start to make these judgments. And if mm. the answer is, is yes, people like me do engage in communities like this, then maybe they'll move on. So, so what helps them to decide that people like me engage in a community like this. Well, just one of the tips from the book is social proof. And so here's kind of an unconventional way, perhaps, to do some social proof. So there are a lot of organizations that are doing virtual onboarding events. So maybe every week, maybe every month, maybe every quarter, they're inviting all of their their new attendees, their new members onto a virtual onboarding or a virtual orientation event. And one of the things you can do is you can have relatively new members. So maybe members who have been in your association for like a year, ask them to be the chat ambassadors. And so they might be young professionals and you have all of these new members coming in and another relatively new member is the chat ambassador. And it just, it helps for people to see somebody a lot like them who's already a member. So wherever you can try to leverage social proof, it really helps people know that there's people like them in the community like this. I love that chat ambassador, nice phrase there. And the shows, you know, it's not all just about standing a video camera up in front of somebody and getting them to say something nice. In fact, I think something like a chat ambassador would probably be a lot more effective than that mm-hmm. in, the, in most situations. So that's, uh, we've done observe and assess. Next one is participate, which to me is starting to sound pretty positive. It sounds like something something good is starting to happen here in terms of your overall topic of engagement, uh, somebody engaging. So we might want to go a little deeper on this one. What's happening in this participate stage? Yeah, so they've decided sort of tentatively, this organization is for people like me. And this is where they start dipping their toe into the water and they interact just a bit because they want to see how they're going to be received. 
So maybe what they do is they contribute to the chat in a webinar, or maybe they respond to a post in your online community, or maybe they comment in a social media post. And so again, they, they kind of sort of dip their toe in the water just to see how they're received. One of the things I like to do as a speaker and facilitator is I love to prime for participation, you know, because I think that there's a couple of things that happen. I want people to get participating as quickly as they feel comfortable, because if there's a huge lag, sometimes it makes it harder to participate later. So to the extent you can, and to the extent you want participation, think about all of the ways that you can prime for participate. So if you'd like, Jeff, I can give one example if there's time. Please do, yeah. Okay. So this is one of my favorite ideas. And I, so I'm, I'm going to, if I can, I'll reel off some ideas and I'll tell you where I stole them from. This particular idea is about engaging your early birds. So if you're having some kind of live event or a live course or a live webinar, there's always a group of your attendees that log in at least a couple of minutes early, but they lo might log in five, 10, maybe even a half an hour early. Some people log in super, super early. And I call these folks the early birds. And this idea that I stole from a friend of mine, his name is Mark Collard, and he has a database of icebreakers and activities and energizers that you can use in your meetings and your courses and your events. And so Mark has this idea of an unofficial start. So when people start coming into your waiting room or live, when people start coming into your room, start. And it can be something as simple as just letting everybody into the room and just having a very unofficial conversation. How's it going? Why are you here? What are you hoping to learn? Or you can come up with some kind of unofficial start activity. I love the unofficial start activities where maybe you just post a question in chat. Hey, as you're coming in, introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about this topic. And those help prime people for participation. We've actually got a course called Presenting for Impact where we're helping presenters become more educationally impactful. I think we use, I think it's the same phrase. I can hardly, can't remember my own writing, but uh, priming for participation, because it is so important. You have to give people the opportunities to, to be able to participate and make it clear that they're there and make it easy and welcoming for them to do that. Seems like it's also a great time for positive reinforcement and appreciation when that happens, I would guess. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. These kinds of things, you've probably found the same thing. They really set the tone. They set the tone for the rest of your time together. And so as the leader, facilitator, teacher, you're setting the tone with how you're queuing up those activities, but also how you're responding to the way people are responding to them. We've got observe, assess, and now participation. Now we're moving to contribute. So what's what's going on here? Yes. So we've moved from participate, dipping your toe into the water, into contribute. It's a little bit more meaningful. So here we're talking about people who are going to speak for you, maybe concurrent sessions, they're writing articles, or maybe they're being interviewed. Maybe they're mentoring. You know, they're bringing a little bit more of themselves to the game. And generally speaking, when we get to contribution, it's the things that take a little bit more time. Participating, I, I can just do that on the fly fairly quickly. But if I'm contributing, it might take me a half an hour or 15 minutes. It might take me 100 hours 
to build a concurrent session. So, so these are things that take time. And what people need to know here is that their contribution is valued. And they might also need to know how to contribute. So there's, in terms of like the go, no-go decision that happens here, is I find that professionals talk about two different problems. One problem is it feels like people are trying to force me to contribute before I'm ready or I don't have time right now. So that, you know, we try to push people to do things they don't wanna do. The other is I'm ready to contribute. I want to write a journal article. I wanna speak, but I, and I keep raising my hand, but nobody's taking me up on it. So those, to the extent that we can make room for both things that happen, the better off we're going to be in having people make that decision to engage and contribute and then continue on in their six-step journey. And with something like contribution, I mean, obviously it's going to be true in any community that some people are going to be more motivated, more inclined to contribute than others. I mean, do you aim to try to find even very small ways for everybody to contribute or do you just sort of resign yourself to the fact that some people may never really contribute, but you can still have an engaged community. I think you can still have an engaged community. I, th there's this term in the association world of mailbox members. They join and they just, they kind of read, they sort of participate when they can, and they don't do much more. And some of those people are members for 20 years and that's okay. And if you push them to do more, they might resist and that might be a deal breaker for them. So yeah, I think that that some people, there's going to be a sub-segment that is ready to just keep moving up that ladder. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to accidentally throw barriers up in front of them to prevent them from doing that. But I think the opposite is also true. I've been playing a lot with the whole idea of gratitude and thank yous. So so you have somebody that spent a, a hundred hours on a concurrent session, and there's it, often there's no thank you from the organization for doing that. There might be a few thank yous from people who sat through that session, but you know probably not from the staff or maybe not from the board or something like that. Well, 100 hours is a lot of hours, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the nice things about public thank yous, even if you say we have 100 speakers and along with you know our board members and our committee and our sponsors and our exhibitors, we also thank the, the speakers that help do this. When people hear the public thank yous, then they'll be more likely to say, oh, hey, being a speaker is a good thing. It's They're recognizing them and maybe that's something I'll try out. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I've personally been in that situation where you put in that kind of contribution and don't necessarily get much thanks for it. So I think it is so important to make sure you're recognizing those contributors, particularly the ones who are contributing at that level. So now the next stage, one I'm particularly interested in, and this is collaborate. And mostly because leading learning is is a site that's all about learning. It's an initiative that, that, that's all about learning. Our business at Tagoras is all about learning. And I think so often within communities, the most powerful, the most useful learning comes out of the collaborations that happen in the community, certainly among the people who are collaborating, who are sort of hands-on doing whatever they're doing. But that also tends to ripple out into the community. It's where new ideas and innovations and just new ways of doing things come from. Because I think we tend to think learning has to happen in courses and classes and seminars and that sort of thing. But so much happens in these kind of collaborative type situations that we find ourselves in. So how do you think about this collaborate stage and the role of collaboration in engagement and in community? Well, we are super like-minded, I think, when it comes to collaborate. 
so I'll tell you how I got there. I was doing these interviews and what I found was there was this certain sub-segment of very engaged members that I would talk to that I started calling the innovators. And what's really happening is people get to a certain stage in their career where they start having these very big, very thorny, very seemingly unsolvable problems, or at least problems that they can't solve themselves or solve within their organization. And so there are some people who get to that stage and they say, problem can't be solved. And then there are what I call my, my innovators that think, well, I don't know if the problem can be solved, but it can't be solved by me, but I think it could be solved by a bunch of us working together. I'd like to find that bunch of us. And I don't know if I can solve this problem, but I'd like to be part of the solution. And that's the collaborate stage. So so again, another go, no go decision. So, so when people are part of say an association or a community and they're raising their hands saying, hey, I wanna collaborate, I wanna get together with like-minded people to solve this problem. A lot of times they'll step out of the association and form a community and do it on the, their own. And that's a shame. Cause I, I think mm. that it would be great if it happened within the walls of the association, because you know the experiments they have, the conversations they have, the conclusions they come to, that could be captured and then sent back out to the entire community. Right. And I think there's a lot of, there's really a lot of power there. And I think you you reference this, this idea that collaboration doesn't just have to be for the collaborators. Mm. If there is a way for you to capture that work and then send it back out. So, so Ariana Riak and I, she's the CEO of Matchbox Virtual Media. We got together during the deep, dark depths of COVID to put on the virtual networking incubator. So we had 150 people that played with all kinds of activities and platforms and technology with us. And then at the end, I wrote a research report on everything that we learned together. So that's just an example of how, you know, we use that really great, really deep group learning. And then we extended the learning much further than the 150 of us that were that were doing those experiments. And is that report available online somewhere? I'm, it I is, it yes, is. Okay. Yes. We'll make sure we get a link to that and, and a link to it in the, the show notes. We love Ariana. She's been on the podcast twice now. So I'm sure that was a fantastic collaboration. I remember hearing about it, but I haven't actually seen the report. So would would like to. We're now at our final stage out of the six stages, lead. So what happens here? Yeah. So you might be more familiar with the terminology of volunteer. So volunteers, there are people who might organize an event, they might create new resources, they might help manage the community or or all of the governance. They're on a committee, they're leading a committee, they're on your board, leading a board. That's the whole lead stage. Mm. And it seems to me that that's an ownership stage too. Like you're seeing the community members actually step up and take ownership of the community, not just the organizers. And I think if you are somebody organizing a community, that has to be the most gratifying thing in the world to see that that starts to happen. The book has been out now for a couple months, two, three months, is that, that about right? And I know I've written books myself before you, you finish it, it goes off to press or whatever, you put it out there in the world and then you think, I would love if I could have talked about this more or now I've learned this since writing the book or my thinking has changed in, in, in some way. Um, anything like that for you, new ideas that have come along now that you've sort of put this out there and are, and are living with it? 
Yeah, I've got a couple of ideas for like bonus chapters. Mm. And one idea that I've been playing with recently is the whole idea of culture. And so when I read resources on culture, we talk about organizational culture. And I think what people are talking about is they're talking about staff culture, but every community actually has a culture. So whether it's kind of like a pop-up community that's forming just maybe around a one-hour event or around a couple of day conference or your online community, all of those things have a culture. And what I've noticed is this high engagement often correlates with a very strong um, positive community identity or culture. And, and I think the leaders have a lot to do with how that culture manifests. So actually there's kind of two things here. If you don't do anything to sort of cultivate your culture, you get kind of this potluck sort of thing that happens and that can be good or bad. But I do believe that as community leaders, we can have a very positive impact on our culture. And so I'm going to go back to what Ariana and I did with the virtual networking incubator. We wanted it to be a place that was very experimental. We wanted people to be able to, off the top of their head, throw out half of an idea and somebody else would ping off that half of an idea and say, oh, what about this? And then somebody else would grab it and then say, oh, what about this? And we wanted that to be able to happen. And we wanted it to be able to happen when 80 or 90 people were in a Zoom room together. And so we said, hey, it's really important for us to have a culture that's very open and very kind and very generous. And we tried to model that in every possible way we could. And so, you know, Ariana and I were writing emails. I was doing the facilitation. And we we're just trying to, you know, before every single gathering, I would get those words in my head and I, I just try to model it every single time. And we had the loveliest culture. It was I mean, people would talk about the gatherings and, and about each other, like, this is the most joyful thing that I did this week. And so I'd love to start having much more conversation around member culture and how we can cultivate really good ones. We might have to have another discussion about that at some point. We focus a lot on learning culture. Mm. We think there needs to be a culture in which learning is valued and appreciated and promoted. And it's not just within the organization. We're talking about in the community and the broader constituency that an organization is trying to serve. And that has to be modeled by the organization. It has to be modeled by the organizational leaders. It has to be modeled by, if there are volunteer leaders, the volunteer leaders. All of that feeds into the culture. And it's really only when that's there that you really get this vibrant learning atmosphere that enriches the entire field or profession or whatever the, the community is serving. So I think it is just so important. I'd love to wrap up by asking you about your own learning. We're all about lifelong learning here at, at the Leading Learning Podcast. So I'd love to know how you approach your own development and learning, both personally and professionally, and particularly in the context of this conversation, what role does community play for you in helping you to learn and grow and develop over time? Yeah, so as a very naturally curious person, I, I find myself signing up for classes and courses and training and books. You can see my bookshelf behind me. I That is nothing compared to my bedside table, which is just packed with books. So, so books are, are really a really kind of go-to for me. I'm always listening to podcasts. I'm kind of a mess when it comes to learning. I, I, uh, I try to learn as much as I can all the time. In terms of community, what I tend to do is I tend to gravitate towards live virtual learning events. And I might be saying virtual because we're still sort of coming out of COVID. And so my recent experiences have been a lot around virtual learning events. 
And what I love is when I find a really great facilitator who is particularly adept at engaging everybody and getting everybody to participate. And for me, it's super interesting, one, because selfishly, I, I love to see how they're doing what they're doing. But I find myself just getting really engaged in the topic because I'm learning from the facilitator, but I'm, I also have the opportunity to learn from all of my peers. And sometimes that's just the best kind of learning. When you've got not only the expert in the room, but 20 or 30 or 80 other experts, it's, it's pretty powerful. I feel like at the end of some of those events, we get much further than any one person could have ever gotten by themselves. Yeah, that's great. This when learning is really happening when it's got that kind of social aspect to it, people really sharing their experiences and helping each other. Amanda Kaiser is a keynote speaker and author of Elevating Engagement. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 355, you'll find a link to her website where you can learn more about her work and the book. And I want to say that I personally enjoyed reading Elevating Engagement. It's an insightful, valuable, and fun read. Amanda's sense of humor comes across throughout the book, which makes use of a fictional hero readers see evolve through those six stages of engagement. So I recommend that you, dear listener, check out her book. Jeff and I would be grateful if you would rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the show valuable, because those ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about Leading Learning, whether in one-on-one conversations with colleagues or through personal notes or maybe on social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 355, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you.